This is Chip in Durham, Erica in Edmonton, and Shannon in Durham. And welcome to episode 49 of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Voices of Authority. Welcome back, and uh, the third season of Babylon 5 is continuing to move along at a fairly brisk clip with a fairly significant episode. A bit of a turning point, I would say, in a couple of respects. And um, it's not at all subtle about the fact that this uh, that <laughs> there are some uh, key developments in this episode. Was subtlety a word that came to either of you as you watched Voices of Authority? Ha! <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. I, I wouldn't say that it was subtle, but I would say that it was... I guess subtle's not the right word, but in in the manner of the the plots that we have, there's nothing that felt very, I don't know... Uh, Monster of the week. There was nothing monster of the week about this. So, in a way, it was a little. Yeah, I can't think of a good word. Subtle is definitely not not the right one, but it, it felt different in flavor because the last sort of you know we had a day in the strife, which had you know it was giving you what a day in the life of Babylon Five looked like, but it also gave you the side plot of the probe that came and was going to kill them, and that was like the big scary thing. I feel like this story was kind of a little bit what a day in the life looks like without the monster of the week thing. I mean, I suppose you could call what's her name a monster, but I'm not going to go quite that far. I would. <laughs> <laughs> but but the thing is, she's at least related to the overarching, like True. what's happening with Earth. There's nothing that just bumps in. So so it, while it doesn't feel subtle from a this is what's happening to the world perspective, it felt a little bit more subtle from a stereotypical science fiction television storytelling standpoint. Wow, I got that all out without stumbling. <laughs> <laughs> Uh well let's uh let's recap what we uh needed to know going into this episode or more properly since you know by the by this point if you're listening to the B5 audio guide you uh, you you've, you're invested you know this show um, I sure hope so anyway Yeah what what voices of the authority builds on is that once upon a time back Back in the misty reaches of like two years ago, a trader named Catherine Sakai flew to a planet called Sigma 957 and stumbled on a mysterious ancient ship that almost killed her. In the intervening two years, we found out that the Vorlons and Mimbari are preparing for a war with an unbelievably powerful and dark foe, the Shadows. The Earth President was assassinated, and the new regime is becoming more Orwellian. And Babylon 5 Captain John Sheridan is smack in the middle of the resistance against both. So in this episode, Delenn convinces Sheridan that it's time to seek out other of the so-called first ones who fought alongside the Vorlons a thousand years ago and may still be hanging around in their parents' basements. Who knows? Sheridan (laughs) has to send Ivanova in his place, though, as someone from the Night Watch has just arrived assigned as his political officer. Ivanova goes to the Great Machine on Epsilon-3 to track down and successfully recruit the aforementioned Walkers at Sigma-957, but not before discovering and recording a shadow link to the President's assassination. This causes chaos on Earth, leading to a speedy exit by the political officer. Meanwhile, both Sergeant Zach Allen and Citizen Jakar are noticing how secretive the command staff and Delin have become, and they're starting to ask... Pointed questions. Voices of authority. Zog. <laughs> Zog indeed. Zog indeed. Um, you know, what is our what's our a plot this time around? Is it the first ones? Because we spend an awful lot of time on Musante and uh, the recording, the assassination plot, and all that stuff. You know. I, I wasn't sure, and maybe this is an unimportant question, but I wasn't entirely sure what the plot, the the primary plot of the story is. I didn't feel like there was one. I honestly, because I, I thought about that too. We always talk about the A plot and the B plot. I felt like this was possibly the most well-balanced episode of Babylon 5 we've seen yet because it just seemed like there were very important things, things that are important to the whole of the show and the whole universe happening on both sides of the coin. And we were just flipping back and forth, you know, semi-regularly. And I didn't feel like one was given more narrative weight than the other. So I think to me that actually kept me 
even more invested in the whole the whole thing because I was excited every time that they flipped back and forth. It'd be like, oh, no, I don't get to hear find out what happens next. But now I'm excited about this thing. And then, you know, lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs> yeah, I would agree that this was this is an episode of two A plots um, that um, are given pretty much equal weight and put together pretty well. Um, it took me a few minutes to get into it this time watching. Um, I had not remembered Zach's rant about his uh, jacket and not being able to get his jacket to fit. Um, and then following on the heels of that, the kind of kind of the exposition scene explaining the first ones again and that sort of thing. So it took me a few minutes to get into it. But uh, once I did, um, I was uh, you know paying attention to seeing all of these um Story arc. And that's the other thing is that both A plots are heavily invested in our current story arcs between the Shadow War and the turmoil on Earth. So I think that's another reason that this one feels like it's really balanced. Balanced, yeah. Um, I do have an issue, though, with how these are this episode really does advance those plots uh, very significantly and yet um, not terribly organically. Um, you know, Delenn gives a speech at the, before the opening credits saying it's time to look for the first ones. And so we look for the first ones. It's not motivated by anything else than, um, a sort of an arbitrary decision by Delenn that it's time to do this. And while Ivanova's in the great machine, as we will talk about in a bit, um, she just happens to, uh, stumble across uh, upon the the piece of evidence that as sheridan says just fell into their laps uh, that proves the uh, assassination plot all along and you know both of these things just sort of come out of nowhere and i do like it when babylon 5 feels a little more organic you know i didn't even it, it didn't even kind of realize the fact that you're right. Delenn's decision just now of of all times is a little bit artificial, and the Ivanova discovering the the information about Clark is. I mean, maybe if we just had one or the other, it wouldn't be so bad. But I think you're right that both of them is a little much. But the Ivanova side of it is actually okay for me because as she's stumbling out of the machine, Drell says a normal human brain shouldn't be able to do this. Well, we know by now that Ivanova doesn't have an entirely normal human brain. She actually has some latent telepathic abilities. Mm -hmm. So her ability to, you know, I'm sure her subconscious has been mulling over the whole Clark thing for this entire time, many, many months. So the fact that it reaches out and is able to find something like that is perfect. Had Sheridan been in the machine and that had happened i then i definitely would have given it some major side eye but since it was ivanova i was kind mm -hmm. of okay with that i knew yeah, the those... word side eye was on the way i just <laughs> knew it. yeah no but those were my thoughts exactly as well that the fact that ivanova's a, a latent telepath if this machine works with its host as intimately as we've been led to believe by the previous appearances of epsilon three then you know the machine would respond as erica said to something ivanova was worried about or um, questioning or mulling over and, you know, go out and sort and provide a uh, potential piece of the answer. Um, I also didn't feel that the first one's issue was quite as out of left field. Um, and I think that's mainly because they deliberately used the same first ones as in Mind War um, with the same uh, Victorian Christmas bauble ship. Um, so that helped for me, that helped it tie back a bit and make it feel a bit more like a part of the story than um, than Chip described. Um, granted. And I don't think it's completely deus ex VHS for Ivanova to have <laughs> discovered this thing, because uh, if you if you go back to what she was doing, um, you know, she's looking for the first ones. She finds first ones at Sigma 957. She is apparently on the verge of being discovered by the shadows. We mm -hmm. see the, you know, we've seen the shadows opening their eyes before in the flashback to Zaha Doom, and the light patterns are exactly that same pattern. So, you know, so she's certainly got the shadows on her mind. And then she, you know, through her subconscious or whatever, she discovers the uh, transmission record. Yeah. Or maybe and, the machine makes the connection. If, or maybe you know, the it machine, makes the connection for her. Because, yeah, because the evidence shows that the shadows had something to do with it. Right. Which that that you this could is an sort Earth of person. In, which you could sort of infer from um, 
the opening scene in matter in uh, matters of honor i mean the closing scene in matters of honor when uh <laughs> what morden's on at earth yeah. dome right now right uh, uh but we actually have recording of president clark smarmy little bastard want to punch him in the face <laughs> talking to space mop literally talking to space mop so yeah, that, Stephen recognized. I was proud. Stephen recognized uh, recognized Morden's voice immediately and just went space mob. <laughs> so so it does it does make sense that you know that Ivanova subconscious would lead her to that discovery. But those are those are still. I, I I'm going to be the curmudgeon here and say that you know these are aspects of the plot that are that happen in this episode because it is time for these things to happen. And I think that's fair. Kermigen. But that does give <laughs> us the opportunity to have Susan Ivanova be our big damn hero of the episode while <laughs> Sheridan is otherwise distracted. How did we feel about Claudia Christian and Susan Ivanova in this episode? Yay. <laughs> yeah, overall, uh, loved it. Um from her um, first um, almost incoherent babbling, you know, we've, we've seen Garibaldi do something like that before. But, you know, to see Ivanova do it was um, even more fun. And, you know, to, you know, instantly draw decides, you know what, you're fun. You're I trouble. Like you. I like you're you. trouble. <laughs> <laughs> um, and seeing um, and seeing Ivanova and Marcus like this is, I think, the first time that, you know, these two have been had any significant uh conversation together um and that was a hoot just mm-hmm. you know because marcus is like the, the total opposite of her in personality it seems really i think she is at her best when she is bouncing off of somebody else or somebody mm-hmm. else is actually bouncing off of her is usually how it works uh, i love those scenes as well and when she appears you know non-corporeally in Sheridan's room uh, uh-huh. at the worst time. That scene was just hilarious. You know, it's her line, good luck, Captain. I think you're about to go where everyone has gone before. I, I could not yeah. stop myself. Even Steven laughed. So that's, <laughs> it's, it's maybe a little bit, a little bit much, but I loved her just deadpan matter of fact reaction to this. She is a soldier. She is doing what she's told. She's not going to make any kind of judgments or anything except for that last little line. That's great. <laughs> and, um, the, and, and then there's the big damn hero part where she realizes that, you know what? Pride is kind of a universal trait. Let's see. Let's see if the first ones have it too. And um, goads them back into agreeing to show up when they're needed. Yeah, that was fantastic. That was a great little bit of, you know, she she has this fiery personality and she, you know, has a tendency to to keep it all under control and and be controlled until she loses it. And I think she recognizes that capability or at least the possibility of that in others and decides to play on that and use it. And I like how skeptical Marcus is. And she's just like, nope, or stick with terrified. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that too. I mean, yeah, he's, you know, kind of terrified there because, you know, this this, this thing could, you know, like he said, swat, swat you like a bug and never notice. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I love it whenever she gets the chance to not be the second banana, but to be the first banana. I, mm-hmm. I she she is such a such, such a strong character. Um, and it's just pleasant not to see her reduced to being the help or the deputy. You know, she's for all intents and purposes, she's the captain of the White Star in this episode. And look, she's even got a cool command chair now because they because <laughs> they stuck a shiny chair in the middle of the set. <laughs> it's it, it, it it's it's appropriate. And uh, Aragorn's back. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Stephen was very surprised. He, and that was exactly what he said. You know, the camera turned to him in the boardroom, and Stephen was like, "Aragorn." I was like, "Yes, dear." See, he's he is there. <laughs> he is in the credits, Stephen. It does sometimes mean something. Yeah, and then he was actually as the credits were rolling, he was very annoyed that uh, that we don't have Lita in the credits now. Now that she is, you know, supposed to be on the station and and part of it, and and oh, he gestured angrily at Veer's credit. You know, Stephen first <laughs> pops up on the screen, and Stephen's just like, "How dare they?" It was <laughs> it's <was> pretty amusing. <laughs> you know, I think that. As much as I'm enjoying rewatching this series, 
I think I'm enjoying almost as must, most as much hearing about Stephen watching this series. <laughs> well, then you'll love this little tidbit. The The first scene with Zach complaining about his, his mm-hmm. itchy, ill-fitting jacket, which is, you know, it's okay. It's it's not something I love, but I don't, it doesn't bother me. I don't mind it. Uh, but Stephen just kind of leans over and says out of the side of his mouth, Lou never complained. <laughs> it's like, wow. I didn't realize Lou Stephen- Welch, man, we love you. Yeah, such a such a such a bond there. Sorry, Zach, you've got a lot to live up to, I guess. Oh, well, well can we can we actually talk about Zach a little bit because uh, yeah. yes, we, we get can. we we get a we're get, we're getting more and more personality out of Zach. We're finding out more about how this guy works. You know, you know, go go mm-hmm. go 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 touch the plant over there. Um, <laughs> you know, take a walk. Yes, sir. Oh, that was great. That was that, that was Love a great that. moment. Um, but um, you know. Zach is not adjusting well um, to his uh, moonlighting job, and we saw in we saw uh, when he was uh, in the meeting with Mister Wells, you know how uh, mm-hmm. reluctantly he coughed up information um, uh, that uh, was bad news for uh, another merchant on the Zoclo and things like that. But um, this time around, he's not sure that he's happy in the night watch but he's neither is he sure that he's happy with the chief and what's going on there he feels like he's being he feels like he's being left out of the out of the loop on stuff and he's got enough night watch propaganda seeping in to worry that uh you know something bad is going on something something uh the chief is involved with maybe he shouldn't and that last that last interaction that uh, Zach has where he says I know you're my commanding officer we got to work together but don't talk to me for the rest of the day that mm-hmm. was uh, that was an eye opener for me mm-hmm. yeah I think and we I, have all go ahead Shannon I, I was just going to say and I think that um, the one of the reasons that um, JMS chose to have um, Garibaldi needing to respond to um, to the alliance uh, in front of Zach without being able to tell him I think that's kind of like the the thing he plants that there for the audience because short while later when um his political officer just pretty blatantly tells zach yes you have to spy on the captain and report back to me and that is completely against zach's military training and that's i mean the look on his face is like okay if it wasn't for the fact that his own suspicions are there he probably would have told her to take a hike and ripped off his night watch band right then because that's mm-hmm. not good. That's not on. But because we've had the enough evidence um, to show that you know that 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 Zach has reason to be suspicious, it doesn't happen. I find it fascinating that we have Zach in this position where he's sort of being pulled in two directions, and that's not all. We have all these different sort of layers of what people know and what people suspect, and and I, I love that. So you got Zach who's being pulled in the night watch direction because you know he's got all this propaganda he wants to make the extra 50 credits a week all of that uh and i think you're you're right shannon that he his his conscience would probably get the better of him if he didn't also have the fact that he's actually a pretty good security officer he knows what's going on well enough to recognize that there's something happening behind the scenes garibaldi's making up codes there are secret meetings there's stuff he doesn't know about so yeah it's it's definitely playing into these fears that are being planted by night watch but on the other side, I love the reminder that Garibaldi had his second in command shoot him in the back in the past. Yeah. So it takes him a long time to kind of get to a place where he can trust somebody else. And yes, he does have these secret meetings going on. But from his point of view, he's got Zach on the other side who he he does trust him, except he's wearing this night watch band, which is basically standing for the opposite of what he is fighting for in the secret meetings. So mm-hmm. why would he why would he trust Zach with that kind of information? So you got to push him pull and and these tugs coming from all different directions and i think narratively it's just a fascinating thing to watch play out and i do like getting to see more personality coming from our second in command because yeah we Mm -hmm. did have you know the the dude who shot uh who shot garibaldi was in a couple of episodes but we never really got a sense of who he was as a person and much as i love lou welch he was just he was cool because he was just a solid guy that was there he also Mm -hmm. didn't have a whole lot of, of fleshing out now we've got a character that has an inner life and it's fun to watch that yeah an inner life and he's not 
he is not particularly uh, a, a, an alpha male as nope. as much as he's got the badge and the um and you know the skill you know he is you know he's complaining about his jacket he is, he makes a really really clumsy pass at musante um <laughs> you know he, really? he you know he is not he, this is a character that is designed to be not all that much as veer was designed to be at the at, right at the beginning um, and since we've come off of the previous season in which one of our regulars turned out to be a secret mole and was written out of the sh- written out of the series by uh, going bad, you know, we don't know at this point which way Zach's going to fall. And I I find that fascinating. You know, we've had other we've had other expendable characters in the credits before. I need, let n- need I remind you. <laughs> so which way which way will which way will Zach go if things get worse? Well, we know, but new new viewers do not, and I think that that's fascinating. Um so yeah, that tension between Zach and Garibaldi was really neat. And uh Zach's not the only one asking questions. Uh how was Jakar this time around? <laughs> oh, you know, I think he was my favorite part of the whole thing. He was he was in it so very little, but he he was like the little kid that wants to be a part of the the cool table at lunch or something. So he's like, you know, I'll I'll carry your books for you. I'll I'll do this. You know, ooh, hey, what's going on in that room? Can I join the club? Can I join the club? It was just it was just I so funny. Be to kind in of... the room where it happens. Okay, blah blah blah. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was just adorable. And then at the end, where he just finally kind of throws up his hands shows up at Garibaldi's room in the middle of the night, um, gives him the book of Jaquan. Garibaldi's like, For whatever reason. Yeah, <laughs> learn. And I just, I think it is, it's just hilarious that this is, this is his, uh, his solution for the problem is to give Garibaldi a book he can't read that may or may not have information that is going to make any sense to Garibaldi in the first place. But the it, the scene was played so perfectly and Andreas mm-hmm. Cassilis was just divine. I mean, Stephen laughed out loud. Stephen has not been, he's not a laugh out loud person all the time when it comes to TV shows. And he certainly has not been for Babylon 5 as we've been going along. Every once in a while it happens. This is the first episode where I actually heard him vocalize his amusement many times. So I'm like, yeah, <laughs> we are we are rolling along now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very amusing. Very strong performance by Andreas Katsoulis. Was that consistent with the character of the Jakar that we've been seeing uh, earlier this season? It seemed a um, little hmm. farcical to me. I, well, I think we're looking at a Jakar who's, you know, he, he got stonewalled by Delenn. And he, you know, the, it looks like he's been paying attention and trying to figure things out through his operatives all along. So if he feel feels like he's reached the end of his rope in this particular situation, um, this, yeah, he'll do something to to um, try and communicate that, you know, what that he has things to offer them or he I don't know. But um. he and he may be played for laps a, a bit more for sure than he had been. But I do think that this is a Jakar who has been stripped of his title, stripped of a lot of his his connections and stuff. And I think he's learning how to navigate the the world that he has been given now. And he's learning that he has to use different tools than he did when he was the ambassador of a planet that was actually in, in pretty decent power. He has come to recognize that certainly the the folks from Earth, at least do not respond well to the you know strong you know yelling strong arming kind of thing that just doesn't work where his as you know you get more you get more catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar so i think he's been he's maybe trying to go in with a little bit of a softer touch so he's trying to act like hey i'm i am your friend or i could be your friend i think that i could help you and and i think that that's actually a pretty wise tactic to take given the personalities of all the people he's trying to influence so i'm i'm willing to to let the goofiness of it go uh in part because of that and in part because it just worked so well as sort of the comic relief for the episode itself so i'm as I mean, I guess it kind of depends on where he goes from here. If suddenly in the next episode he's back to being, you know, Mr. Strongarm, shouty, angry, mopey, whatever. If it doesn't completely fit, then then perhaps I will think that this is more of an outlier. But as usual, I don't actually remember what comes in the next few episodes. So I'm good with it for now. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I'm wondering if part of the um, ending scene with the Book of Jaquan is to you know counterbalance slightly or build on um, Jakar's discussion with Garibaldi earlier in the episode, where you know they're coming to a point where Jakar knows something is going on and he's considered Garibaldi a friend, and yet Garibaldi is not coming clean with him, and Garibaldi is like, okay, essentially. Yeah, something's going on, but I don't see how you fit in it. And so Jakar is trying to show him, you know, through the book of Jaquan, I guess, you know, hey, maybe I do read this, but I don't read it. <laughs> so um, I think one last thing that we need to talk about. Well, two last things. But the first last thing, the first thing we need to talk about before we <laughs> go to spoiler space is our political officer and how we felt about that sub thread there. Um, uh, <laughs> super uncomfortable. <laughs> well, and I think that's kind of the point um, of this character. The fact that she, on the one hand is spewing the party line from Clark's administration so thoroughly and using all of those hot button words and phrases that, you know, those of us who've, you know, seen political history or political science of the last century, it's designed to make us uncomfortable. And then on the other hand, she clearly doesn't buy into it. She's just doing her job. You know, I mean, um, she's rewriting the, one- the dictionary. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. she 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 sees it as a job and she's going to do her job to the best of her ability and hey, there's this good-looking guy I can have fun with while I'm doing this mm-hmm. until he shoots her down. Um so um I thought if the point of the character was to be the ultimate campaign manager, PR person, I'm not sure what exactly the title would be, then she had it in spades. But because it was built on not on her beliefs, but, you know, her doing her job, I think we see through we see through it. And I think that's what makes the character uncomfortable. I think I I think I think I prefer Jillian and Miracle Day to this one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I I I to me, the thing that made me uncomfortable was just simply, I mean, as we record this, the political situation in the United States is rather, rather fraught. And I think the echoes of of what some quarters are saying was was what made me the most uh, uncomfortable, because as this aired back in the 90s, I mean, there was there was there was stuff. There's always stuff happening. Um, But I think it was more of an echo, you know, sort of back to uh, you know, we keep kind of going back to World War II uh, a lot of times with the yeah. the political echoes and repeats that are happening in Babylon Five. And there was some Cold War stuff here too, with the the, yeah. the, the very idea of a political officer. Um, mm-hmm. Didn't that start with with Russia inserting these people into military units? I'm not familiar with the history, yeah. but I, I that's very. If that's not the first thing, then that is certainly mm-hmm. one of the uh, one of the dominoes kind of pointing in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the whole her whole speech at dinner about, you know, that all crime is caused by the mentally unstable. There's no prejudice, uh, you know, except for the Marzis mm-hmm. that make her sick and explaining away the homeless. Uh, they choose it because if they don't have a job, mm-hmm. they must be lazy or unstable. And I mean, yeah, Stephen, that Stephen doesn't just said, sound familiar at all. Yeah. Stephen said, basically, this is the culmination of Donald Trump right here. And I was just like, oh, you yeah. are not wrong. So I think I think that this was one of those characters and episodes and scenes where I was bringing an awful lot of my own personal baggage to it as a viewer, which I think it made it even more effective than it would have been anyway, because those are those are those are thoughts and ideas that should always make us feel uncomfortable, I think. But Mm -hmm. it was it was even worse because of that and it was it was a pretty good performance it wasn't it wasn't great but it was it was good enough and she, she was, was just so matter of fact about everything she was definitely selling i think the actress was doing a good job overall of selling this character and mm-hmm. i think most of my discomfort comes from how the character was drawn yeah. um i was also slightly distracted um the actress uh sherry Shatuk. I'm not sure how her last name is pronounced. Um, she was actually on one of the soap operas that my sister watched when she and I were sharing uh, an apartment back in our uh, <laughs> university days. So I was also remembering, you know, that character a bit. Um, the only thing that um, sort of threw me somewhat in, in this episode is 
the fact that she made such a blatant play for Sheridan. Uh, that that yeah. really that seemed to be totally backwards from any professionalism that she had been trying to establish up to that point. I kind of I kind of liked it, though, because, like I said, everything that she was saying was very matter of fact. And then mm-hmm. she matter of factly just gets naked in front of him like this is a part yeah. of the job. This is a thing that I can do to help further things along. Make sure that he, he, you're so right in that and that she really is just a hired gun and doing her job. And she thinks mm-hmm. that this is a thing that's going to help her get the job done better. And with any other any other cap probably nine times out of ten that tactic is going to work because you know there's a naked woman in front of you are you going to pay attention to you know whether she seductively takes her clothes off or just drops them mm, maybe maybe you're not going to notice yeah i guess some of it's the i think it was, nature a, of television. I think it was a tactic that she chose to uh try to um weaken sheridan's position shall we say mm-hmm. <laughs> now that makes more sense yeah yeah that's true i like that and of course, it doesn't work because you know right. we have Sheridan as our our our, our big damn hero uh, in that way. This well, is this if, is his if, way of if being he'd been a little more Kirk like. Maybe I don't. Know. He's he's <laughs> sort of he's he's sort of stolid in this episode. I'd say. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I just have to wonder. I mean, yes, he was sort of forced into kissing her because of Ivanova's appearance. But wondering if <laughs> wondering if she would have been such the woman scorned if he hadn't had to do that and then figure out a way to get her out of his out of his quarters. Yeah, that she does was add an furious the next morning. An interesting wrinkle to be like, you know, if he would have just turned her down flat, she probably would have been uh, grumpy about it, but recognized that he just didn't give in. But the fact that he, they actually did have a kiss that looked fairly passionate, um, and then she gets turned down. That's that's gotta mm-hmm. hurt a little bit more. Yeah, it's colder in here than I thought. <laughs> I'll fix that. <laughs> oh, that was that was a line that. I don't know. It could have been a step too far, but it worked for me. (laughs) Generally speaking, performances, scripting, direction, you know, this seemed like an important episode. Um, I mean, at the end of this episode, the lid's been blown off, theoretically, about, uh, about the assassination plot. That is to say, if the truth has anything to do with, um, how people react to it. Um, so an important episode. Was it a good one? You know, I I think it was. And honestly, when I finished watching it, I didn't think of it as an important episode with a capital I. I mean, I recognize that it is from a, a story standpoint within the arc, but it didn't, you know, it wasn't a wham episode. It didn't have anything that slapped me in the face and was like, this is so huge, like some of the other episodes have that we've seen. So I think that in itself is part of what makes it such a good episode for me. It didn't need to resort to sort of the, the cheap, flashy tactics to, to get the point across. It was just it was just even and solid from beginning to end and and i think you're right the direction actually was was very solid and good steven quite liked it he noticed there were a couple of camera things there was a nice rack focus from uh, julie Masante sitting at a table in the zocalo back to garibaldi who's watching her mm-hmm. and then rack focus back again to her staring angrily right. into space so you get a few little touches like that on top of uh, everything else which is very solidly done I, mm-hmm. I do think it was a good episode um, from top to tail. Yeah, solid's a good word. I, there were lots of touches, lots of things here and there, uh, subtle things that I liked. Uh, something that struck me this time um, as uh, Musante's giving her speech to all of the Nightwatch people, and she's getting more and more hyperbolic and over the top, and they pan across. And we already know Zach is uncomfortable as hell, and we've got our you know second speaking person asking pointed questions and, and pushing mm-hmm. back. But then they pan to the rest of the audience, and there is a all kinds of different reactions going on. I mean, you've got some people who are staring at her wide-eyed like, are you for real, woman? And then you've got a couple of guys looking at, uh, looking, looking at each other and kind of nodding along like, you know, yeah, about time. So they're actually showing, you know, just all of these different uh, – this range of reaction from positive to negative, um, which, you know – it didn't take long to do it, but it was a really cool way to show that, yes, all t- takes all sorts of people to make the world. How much I wonder how you direct a scene like that. To, you know, you just say to your 20 extras or whatever. OK, uh, it, last name A through M. You like what <laughs> she's saying? You know, I don't know. Yeah. Whatever they did, I, I felt that worked. Mm. 
Uh, so, voices of authority. Um, so, what's going to happen now that the news media is reporting that uh, the vice president has uh, apparently attempted to kill the president? And, and, and succeeded. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> it's you know? exciting stuff. You know, One, Stephen, Steve, I, I can give you the Stephen check-in now if you'd like. Please. Um, he uh, he quite liked this episode. He really enjoyed it. He said he really likes the episodes where they move the big chess pieces a bit. But he actually thought that Ivanova and Aragorn, <coughs> uh, Ivanova <laughs> and Marcus, uh, were a little bit too flippant in dealing with the, the first ones, the new aliens. He thought that that should have been a little bit more awe-inspiring and they didn't treat the aliens quite with the respect that they should have. You know, cause it's a whole new species. Um, but other than that, he, he liked the episode. And he also noticed that there was, at least on our version different closing credit music it was not the the Hmm. theme played over the credits as usual it was a little more subdued and and kind of darker so i I didn't notice until he pointed it out because i am clueless when it comes to those things but yeah that was different from this episode we go to our 50th regular episode of the audio guide to babylon 5 next time wow Um, feeling old now um (laughs) and that's going to be i'll bring the cupcakes that's going to be dust to dust and uh we'll talk about that next time um we're about to go through a jump gate and talk about spoilery stuff for the future of the series so until until next time uh if you are spoiler averse please uh chime in at our discussion threads at b5audioguide.com we're at B5 Audio Guide on Twitter and Tumblr. We'd like to hear from you. You know, we really do have some of the best commenters in podcasting at the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. And that makes me just feel all here, nice and here. warm and fuzzy inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's quite the insightful, intelligent community feel going on over there. So if you haven't checked it mm-hmm. out yet, I, I recommend it. And... We can't promise cupcakes, but you'll you'll, you'll (laughs) enjoy the discussion. We've got some smart folk out there. Uh, But if you're you're into spoilers, hang around for a bit before you go to the website because we're going through the spoiler jump gate right now. As we were wrapping this episode up and we see Sheridan and Ivanova on the catwalk talking about, well, the news is out now. I guess we hope that the truth means something or whatever the line was. And I'm sitting here going, yep, Sheridan, you're wrong again. <laughs> we are we are we are on the fast track to severed dreams. Can you believe it? Yep. It feels like it's taken so long to get here, and now we're just, you know, we're on the slide, and it just gets steeper and steeper and steeper, and that's very exciting. Indeed. So let's uh, talk about uh, some of the many things that are set up in this episode that will be paid off in the long run. And one of those things is not all is not going to be paid off all that satisfyingly to me, and that is the first ones. Um we get the awe and majesty of the first ones uh, described to us all the way back in Mind War when um, when um, the when Jakar has his conversation with Catherine Sakai about you know they walk at Sigma nine five seven and they're you know they're mysterious and timeless and um, mm-hmm. all this stuff and then Delin going through her. Uh, her recitation of the um a- a- the ancient shadow war and, and and then we get to the point where we've got to record recruit some first ones hey up up this way in series four we're, they're going to be like oh hey yeah we forgot we need to go back and recruit some more first ones and it's like you know bringing in like the decepticons or cobra you know you start calling them first ones and they have a name and they show up in increasingly sort of kind of mundane ships that are supposed to seem otherworldly i'm (laughs) disco 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 ships once 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 the totem shows up and says zog i feel like some of the sort of cthulhu-esque mystery that they're trying to go for starts we start losing that because they're they become a plot point it's just yeah. it's you're fighting a losing battle when you have to actually show something like that on screen. It's 
it, your imagination is never it's, it's always going to sort of do better than whatever they they give us with a visualization it's sort of like the lovecraft thing the stories are creepier because you don't actually see the monsters and in this case the first ones are really awe-inspiring until you actually see them on the screen so i, yeah. I don't know that there's any better way they could have done this so i kind of just shrug and they don't yeah. think like us except when they do because they're yeah. they're okay. stubborn and prideful and they, you know, and, and, and they have thoughts. And they about respond the to goading. They, they, they have feels <laughs> yeah. about the Vorlons. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The, 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 the Tiki God face was, uh, yeah, <laughs> was not a respect. It was for, at least for me, it was not a representation that blended well with the design of the ship. That was the thing yeah. that jarred me the most mm-hmm. of all. Cause that's such a lovely, pretty, I, I love the colors. It's sparkly. You know, it, it's a cool design. I think at least this one ship is. Um, and then to have, yeah, big, yeah, big wooden face talking. Yeah, it didn't blend well. Yeah. I do like, however, that, you know, as soon as she mentions the Vorlons, um, that get, that get, that gets her attention. And, you know, you could think, you, you could decide, well, that's just pride, you know, they're, 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 they're no. Mm-hmm. The Vorlons are just as bad as the Shadows, and here is your first official hint that these other first ones recognize that. We also, um, I mean, I like the the advancement of the Zach's going to have to choose uh, thing Mm -hmm. that happens in this episode. And... um, um, and, Yeah, JMS does a beautiful job of of building that mini arc to his character. Which is going to uh, be resolved in a dramatic dive under a door and uh, flinging yeah. a, an armband on on the floor. Um, how do we feel about Zach Allen at this point? Well, he's cons- he's fine. Yeah, I mean, we we know since since we know how he's going to decide. You know, it's kind of like you know, oh poor baby, you know, you'll figure it out soon. Mm-hmm. Oh poor yeah, baby I mean, is just- not uh, it's not a thought that. <laughs> automatically goes into my head when i'm thinking about him i just i find him as just sort of your you know he's a, a everyday joe kind of a guy who's just you know going along to get along and, and trying to do his job and i i like that we have somebody like that on babylon 5 so it's it's kind of a nice addition additional viewpoint that we didn't really have before from anyone so I mean, it's not quite like a view from the gallery, but it's, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're getting somebody who's not at the top levels of the echelon, who's not an ambassador, who's not a, a super important person and and seeing how they navigate the station. And and I like that. I like that. And personality wise, he's you know, he's not a character that at this point I have you know completely fallen in love with or anything, but I don't dislike him. He's just he's just Zach. Do you look I at him a- in this episode and say. There, right there, is the future Earth ambassador to the Centauri. I do not. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, 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 he's a well-drawn character. He's got a good, a decent bit of personality, and he fits a fairly vital role. I mean, we've got, you know, characters like Lanier and Veer to be the, you know, the view from below of these other races you know, Zach is the parallel for the command staff at this point, um, you know, between like him and uh, Lieutenant, um, shoot, and I've forgotten, Cox. Corwin. Um, Ivanova's Corwin. Oh, right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's, I, I like that. And JMS is also, of course, using Zach to, you know, flesh out the, the the Night Watch issue and how somebody might be attracted to it at first and then get into deep and realize that, no, this is not good. So he's like a microcosm of, you know, the common man from um, just general Earth perspective as well for politics as well as for the runnings of the station. So, um, so yeah, I'm glad he's there. We also had, this is, this is Marcus's second appearance in the show. Um, he and Ivanova seem to get along uh, fairly well in matters of honor. And I was trying to figure out, I was, I was sort of waiting for the moment when we would have some tension between them to sort of set up their arc for the next two, uh, for the next two years, which is the whole star-crossed lovers bit. Um, it 
does sort of come a little bit out of left field this time because she's in a bad mood when she steps onto the um, uh, bridge of the White Star and that appears to set the tone for the next two years. Um, but we were talking as we were talking before in the spoiler space. I, I just love the the differences in their perspectives. He's got the sort of Mimbari training mindfulness going on, and she's just having none of it. She's a pacer, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, I think that this I think this does a decent job. Given that we haven't seen Marcus in the last uh, four episodes until now, that does a good job of um, giving their relationship a sort of nudge in the right direction. You know, I think there's also the fact that they they make it clear that she was not expecting Marcus to even be there. You know, there's mm-hmm. this person who has shown up. She's seen him in a couple of meetings. As we will learn later on, part of the reason that she he bothers her so much is she doesn't know where he belongs in her hierarchy, in her organization. Right, so he makes a flowchart. Yeah, that, that, he makes that lovely flowchart and gets her to laugh. Um, but because... You know, it's he's the one who shows up instead of Lanier that, you know, immediately puts her on her back foot slightly. This is not who I expected. This is somebody I don't know very well yet. And yet I have to trust him to translate my orders to the bridge. Um, and then as the their um, as their plot line develops, um, they are, you know, fairly opposite in temperament. So that just c- sort of continues the conflict. So it generally works for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she th- Marcus is kind of just this delightful scamp the whole time. And of course, Ivanova is she's been a soldier for a long time. She's probably just gotten used to filtering out people who are goofy and jokey like that in order to get the job done. Uh, So I I feel like believe in delightful scamps. No, no. Uh, so probably, you know, his his charm, it doesn't even really register on her. Certainly at first, it you know takes a while for that to, to sort of filter through the levels. The one thing that I didn't like was just a, a moment of performance, actually, from Jason Carter uh, at the end after Ivanova has has shamed the disco aliens into promising their help later on. Mm-hmm. She um, so she's standing there, you know, looking up at them and you get Marcus kind of to the side of her and behind her looking at her and the look on his face was just almost condescending like i I know that this is supposed to be the the seed of yes he has a a huge crush on her and and i think that's what he was trying to convey like i knew she could do it i'm so proud of her but it 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 goes over the line into like kind of smarmy Hmm. condescension i just so so that was one sour note at the end of a scene that was fairly fairly decent Hmm. i didn't i didn't Um, read it that way it seemed like he was just sort of just genuinely impressed by her yeah i wanted i wanted him to be but it didn't look that way. yeah if it's the same scene i'm thinking of i I was leaning more in chip's direction he's sort of got you know the the mouth slightly open like i can't believe she just pulled that off look i think Um, this is i think that the shot that i'm thinking of is a little after that okay Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was I, I probably sounded more down on this episode than I really am during the pre-spoiler <laughs> section. But um, as much as it's a little ham-fisted to get these, uh, to get the uh, first ones in and out in 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 and out the door, and to get the recording of the assassination plot into position everything that happens after this just you know is so beautiful that i'm grateful to this episode for existing because it makes <laughs> messages from earth point of no return and share and severed dreams possible mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. but it happens it happens long enough before those episodes that it just sort of has this chance to build in the background yeah, because like originally this was supposed to air in front of passing through the Gethsemane, if I remember correctly, but the special effects delayed it. And um, the master list decided to keep it this way because the uh, Jakar handing the book to um, of Jaquan to um, Garibaldi at the end sort of ties in a bit with um, his development in Dust to Dust. Yeah, there's a, um, there's sort of an an, uh, an immediate payoff. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I... I I like this order better as well. Yeah. And, oh boy, when <laughs> when Garibaldi finally gets his Narn English dictionary 
and finally hits pay dirt with um with the narn <laughs> religion history what yeah the mind walker next yeah. next what next season it's going to be that long isn't it <laughs> it is going to be down the road yes yeah no 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 oh. no it's this season it's just before zaha doom okay because uh-huh. because okay. that's the that's the breaking point when the when the army of light figures out that the that telepaths can stop the shadow vessels that's mm-hmm. when they change strategy and they send Anna, send Anna Sheridan in. Okay. Ah, right. All right. Because, yes, I cannot wait. You do not thump the book of Jaquan. <laughs> 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 oh, oh and, and, and speaking of Jakar, I mean, next episode, that's, that's the turning yeah. point. Everything that Jakar does in this episode, trying to get into the room where it happens, is all about, you know... There's an alliance building that may help my people. And right. maybe I can do something for you, but that's not his motivation. Mm-hmm. After this after next ne- episode, he's a completely different person. Yep. Exactly. Ooh, I can't wait. I Erica, <laughs> why, so do you have to, why do you have to uh, moderate that one? Why do we have to take turns? <laughs> because that's What's it worth what to we you? decided. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, any other uh, closing thoughts on uh, Voices of Authority and how it relates to the five-year arc? Mm, well, we they, did get the one line, uh, unless there's been a coup and nobody told me. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> yeah. oh, just you wait, just you wait. <laughs> yeah, and, indeed. And and, and, and he, it's kind of, he's making the coup. Uh the, and and Musante makes a really valid point. You know, the military is going to be going up against the civilian government. Because the civilian government is not legitimate, because the civilian government is there not through election or accident through assass- but through assassination. Uh but and you corruption. Know, this is this is this is a big deal. Secession and military and and military coup this is some you know that that's some nasty stuff and uh, it's mm-hmm. the reason that uh, captain elizabeth lockley uh stays in uh, earth force uh during the uh during the uh earth civil war but uh you know that that was a that line was actually uh really really appropriate mhm anything else no i think that's it this is a good one all right i'm happy about it and excited to move on all right dust to dust next time uh please uh find us in the spoiler threads uh let's talk more about everything that we missed and i'm sure we did plenty uh dust to dust drops in two weeks in real time or whenever you get around to listening to it uh as you're going through the episodes with us thanks so much for listening until next time this is chip and durham erica in edmonton and shannon in durham And as ever, you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5, Zog. Indeed. Um. Yep. Sebastian. (laughs) Marie Cat clearly has some competition. (laughs) Oh, kitties.